Welcome to episode two of King of the Cast, the pro wrestling podcast about pro wrestling for pro wrestling fans. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at King of the Cast and vote in the polls so you can help crown our next King of the Cast. In episode one, we debated the best tag team, threw that poll up on Twitter, and after all the votes were tallied, our first ever King of the Cast is Mr. Greg Hereford. And as our first King of the Cast, Greg, you get the opportunity to pick our topic and lead our discussion today. So I'm going to throw it on over to you, Greg. Thank you, brother. And uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to introduce the topic and I'm going to read to you the card. I've asked Rick if I could do this and there may be some folks listening out there, old time Memphis wrestling fans. So I'm going to do this in honor of one of my childhood heroes, uh, the late, great Lance Russell, who left us. Uh, just a few years ago, and Lance and Dave Brown would host the championship wrestling show for Memphis, and it would go a little something like this, and I'm going to introduce our show, and I'm going to do my best, Lance Russell. Well, hello again, everybody. This is Lance Russell, and right here along ringside for another big episode of King of the Cast, episode number two. And boy, I tell you what, we've got a great, great episode this week. We're going to be talking about the greatest angle angle of all time. And what I'm talking about angle, I'm talking about a series of events occurring as a part of a storyline involving wrestlers. And our panelists today are going to be talking about that. And buddy, we've got some good old good ones to talk about. We're going to open up here on our show, episode number two today with this double tough Floridian, the North Florida Nightmare, Ricky Carr, going to be talking here with us about an interesting angle Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, one of the greatest tag teams of all time. But there was a problem, and they broke up. And Rick's going to be talking about that angle and what all the ramifications were involving that. Then, coming in next, we've got one of Lexington's finest backyard wrestlers, Kevin Marshall. He'll be coming in here, the marvelous one. We'll be talking about a great, great heel turn when Hulk Hogan turned the yellow and red in for the black of the NWO and became Hollywood Hogan. Wow, what a big one that was. Then, double excited about this guy. We've heard a lot of great things about him. He's going to be making his debut, Jason Gary. Jason Gary's going to be doing a real, real episode here. It gets real with CM Punk and the pipe bomb incident and all the things about that. Then we've got the other half of the Marvelous Marshall tag team, and that's Jay Marshall. Jay's going to be talking about Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan. Boy, you talk about two big giants. Monumental clash right there. He's going to be talking about all all the angles that went on with that particular episode. Then, oh boy, expiration of time match. The intergender heavyweight wrestling champion of the world. Andy Kaufman will be coming, and he'll be facing Jerry the King Lawler. We'll go back to the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee. Remember you all? Remember that great deal? And we're going to be talking about that angle, buddy. It's going to be good. we got a lot. If we're going to get it in, buddy, we better get started. We're going to turn it over with our opening match. Ricky Carr coming in here. Ricky, take it away, brother. <laughs> well, my angle is an angle that was seven years in the making. One that not many fans saw coming and led to the creation of one of the greatest stars in wrestling history. I'm talking about Shawn Michaels turning on Marty Jannetty in the barbershop on Wrestling Challenge in 1992. 
Marty and Jannetty and Shawn Michaels first competed for the National Wrestling Alliance Central States Wrestling Territory in Kansas City in 1985. And on May 15th of 1985, Michaels and Jannetty defeated the Batten Twins, uh, that'd be Brad and Bart, to win the NWA Central States Tag Team Championship. And that would be their first championship as a tag team. Now, they weren't known as the, as the Rockers or the Midnight Rockers quite yet, but they had already tagged team up in uh, the NWA Central States Wrestling back in 85. In early 1986, both Jannetty and Michaels were signed by the American Wrestling Association, and the two were paired up by the AWA booker Greg Gagne. And the two of them came up with the name the Midnight Rockers. The Midnight Rockers soon moved on to a feud with the team of Doug Summers and Buddy Rose, who at the time were the top tag team in the promotion. On January 27, 1987, the Midnight Rockers defeated Rose and Summers for the AWA tag team title. The Midnight Rockers got an offer from Vince McMahon while holding the AWA title, so the team made their way to the WWF in 1987, only five days after dropping the AWA tag team titles. They challenged the then WWF tag team champions, the Hart Foundation, for a title match. Now, you have to understand this is a, a time in wrestling when young talent's coming in and the, and the talent who is already there is, is going to try to make them prove themselves. And throughout that process, they kind of there's a story that Michaels tells in his autobiography, and it talks a little bit about this, this part right here. But uh, apparently, uh, Jimmy Jack Funk had an issue with him, and something he said or something Michaels did, something to that effect, got uh, Jimmy Jack Funk on their wrong side, and he goes to Vince, and, and that led to them being fired because of excessive partying and not enough focus on their in-ring work. After being fired by the WWF, they went down to Continental Wrestling around Alabama and Pensacola, Florida, and uh, then started working along with the AWA-affiliated um, wrestling in Memphis, Tennessee. Their first feud in Memphis was against a recently formed team known as the Nasty Boys, Jerry Sags and Brian Knobs, whom they faced in several brutal matches over the CWA territory. Uh, the Midnight Rockers win the AWA uh, Southern Tag Team Championship on October 26, 1987. And with their success in Memphis, the AWA started to book them as well, having the Midnight Rockers split their time between Memphis and the AWA territory. On December 27, 1987, the Midnight Rockers defeated the original Midnight Express, Dennis Condry and Randy Rose, for the AWA Tag Team title. Speaking of Midnight Express, well, when you talk about Midnight Express, most people think of Jim Cornette and, uh, and that Midnight Express, and so Jim would introduce his team like the human highlight film of professional wrestling, Beautiful Bobby and Sweet Stan, the Midnight Express, and that's probably who we think of. When I think of Midnight Express, I think Beautiful Bobby and Sweet Stan with Jim Cornette as their manager. But that's not who we're talking about here. Uh, the AWA build a tag team, the original Midnight Express. Instead of hearing Jim Cornette, you're going to hear Paul E. Dangerously. He's going to be their manager. And Paul E. Dangerously would bring to you lover boy Dennis and Ravishing Randy, the only team that rock and rolls past midnight the original Midnight Express. So that's who we're talking about here back in the AWA. Now these matches were from, uh, if you watch these matches, they're from the Showboat Sports Pavilion. They aired on ESPN, the Total Sports Network. From coast to coast, continent to continent, from Seattle to San Juan, from San Francisco to San Salvador, from New York to New Zealand. For the next four minutes, they're going to tell you from one place to another on ESPN where they're being shown. Um, and I'm probably remind you 74 times an episode that they're from the Showboat Sports Pavilion. So if you're going to go back and watch some of these episodes, you are not watching th thrilling, entertaining um, production. But man, you are seeing some good matches. So if you want to see some good matches, go back and watch. But if you're looking for a exciting production, it it's hard to watch some of it. Um, but if you want to see some high-flying tandem style of professional wrestling, watch the Midnight Rockers matches back in the AWA. 
Um, in, in Sean's autobiographical video, Heartbreak and Triumph, Mick Foley says that Midnight Rockers made the AWA watchable. Uh, and Chris Jericho says um, that they were one of his favorite teams back in those AWA days, which I would consider pretty high praise um, for that. Shortly after leaving the AWA, Vince McMahon informed them that he was willing to bring them back if they were able to be more professional. And they, they went back to the WWF and immediately got into a um, feud with the Brainbusters. While in the WWF, they comp competed against teams like the Twin Towers, Akeem and the Big Boss Man, the Fabulous Rougeau Brothers, the Powers of Pain, the Orient Express. And frequently, Gorilla Monsoon would refer to them as Tag Team Technicians. In one pay-per-view, it's even said they might be the best tag team of the 90s. Well, one really interesting thing about the Rockers is they never officially held the WWF Tag Team Championship. That's something I didn't know until going back and looking through all this information and watching all these matches in AWA and then into, the, into, that, into that era. They never actually held the Tag Team titles. On October 30th, 1990, Genetti's and Michaels did actually defeat the reigning champions, the Hart Foundation, in a two out of three falls match in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and won the title. And during, but during that match, the top rope broke by accident, making the match almost unwatchable. It, it, go back and watch it. I mean, it's, you can find it pretty easily on the network, but it, uh, it's, a, it's, it's bad. Once that top rope breaks, so much of what the Rockers did that made them great was what the moves were unable to do. I mean, these two guys, they innovated so much high-flying, tag-team, tandem-type wrestling that you're expecting them to do all these things. And they're supposed to be going over, you know, they're the Hart Foundation's doing the favors for them, and half their stuff can't be done because they're bouncing off a rope that doesn't move or trying to jump off a rope that doesn't exist. So uh, what ended up happening in that situation is they even actually even defended the titles, but because the, back then everything was taped and then put on TV later, they were going to try to edit the match in order to put it on TV, but it basically they couldn't even edit it well enough to make it watchable. So what the WWF decided to do was basically act like it never happened. And they gave the titles back to the Hart Foundation and went on on TV as if those two other matches never happened. So, by all record, never, never happened. Uh, so they never actually held the titles. Um, but after te teaming together since 1985, the Rockers would split up on de in December of 1991. The final split came on Brutus Beefcase Barbershop, which was taped on December 2nd, 1991 and shown on, the, shown on television on January 12th. 1992. After seemingly working their problems out, Michael suddenly super kicks Gennetti before sending him through the glass window at the barbershop. Uh, when he threw him through the glass window, you notice if you go back and watch it, Gennetti stays through the window for a bit. That's an opportunity for him to blade in order to make this even more realistic on TV, um, which was very rare at that time uh, to do that, especially during a backstage type set, uh, situation. Um, but after he's thrown through the window, when he comes back or comes back out, he's uh, all you know, bloody from being thrown through the window. Um, they were supposed to continue to feud after that, uh, but unfortunately, Gennetti gets suspended soon thereafter due to an incident outside of a Tampa nightclub, and uh, gets and they could never kind of go on with their uh, particular feud. Soon after that, um, you get the Shawn Michaels that most of us kind of know today. Pretty quick, you get that heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels. And what's really cool, what I didn't realize about that, and I'm sure I'll pick Shawn Michaels in a, in a future episode of this for some other reason, but something I did learn, which might be interesting to some, uh, is that when he first debuts with uh, Sensational Sherry and that you have the music in the background, she's singing all the music, the whole song. And it's, he's a sexy boy. And it's all in, like, 
as her singing about Shawn Michaels. And of course, eventually it changes to him singing a majority of it. And, and it's, I'm a sexy boy. I'm not your boy toy type thing. So um, I, I, didn't, I didn't remember that at all. Um, I knew that forever uh, Sherry was still receiving rights to that song um, because she sang on, on it. And I just, I thought it was that very first part where she's like, oh, Sean, and that part. Uh, but I didn't realize she actually had sung the entire song to begin with. And that was, that was a pretty cool kind of side note from, I got from going through all this information about the, the, the breakup. Um, but to go back to the angle that I chose, the actual particular, I want to give you some of that background, take you through the storyline, because that's something that built and built and built over time. You're talking about match after match, getting an entire group of, of wrestling fans who are following the Midnight Rockers in AWA, following them to WWF, exciting, excited to see them as the Rockers. Um, you're talking about really cool music as they're coming down. It's a whole, it's a whole big gimmick based around these two dudes, and they're, they're pushed up to the very top of the card, you know, wrestling the biggest names, and then you're going to have them split. And we all know, kind of through history, that when tag teams split, it always feels like one kind of rises to the top and one goes to the bottom. So this, but when when a tag team splits and one kind of rises up and one kind of, you know, it's it's unless that tag team's planning on getting back together soon thereafter, um, it's it's probably the end of it could be it could very well be the end for both if it doesn't go over very well. So in this case, though, uh, what ends up happening is. Sean gets pushed to superstardom. I mean, all the way to the top of the card, he's becomes, you know, uh, world heavyweight champion, you know, everything. And unfortunately, uh, this was supposed to not kind of come at the cost of, of Marty Jannetty. It was supposed to be an opportunity for them to feud together and kind of build them both. Sean as the heel and, and Jannetty as this big time baby face. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't happen because of, of Jannetty's suspension. And then he would eventually, Jannetty did end up coming back and did up wrestling Shawn Michaels and they did some of that. But by this time, you know, the, the audience had moved on and they didn't care as much about the Rockers breakup anymore. But back to the actual event itself, I mean, what, what brought it to my mind first is such a big angle. It's not just the fact that it was such a, a, a big, you know, built up for so long, but also because no one really saw it coming. Yeah, they did a little bit of a build to it at, at the Survivor Series. You can kind of see them, um, you know, being a little bit uh, not as on the same page, I guess you could say. But then they go to the barbershop. And if you don't know what the barbershop is, if you're, if you're listening to this, uh, this is kind of a set situation where they're going to do interviews. So kind of like Chris Jericho's Highlight Reel or, or Miz TV or, or Piper's Pit. So that's type of that situation. But in this case, it's a barbershop. So you've got your barbershop pole and like a window and a chair. And the gimmick for Brutus the Barber is he's, when he wrestles somebody, cuts their hair with these giant shears. I don't know. It was an interesting gimmick when you go back and look. But you have him in, in Brutus's all his glory in this, sec- in this segment. I and mean, we're talking purple and white cut up Pam he is he the big hair I mean yeah, it is it is Brutus to the to the nines just behind it is he's going to reunify him. he's going to get them back together you know he's they're going to work out their differences here in the barbershop because that's what men do apparently and they're going to work out their differences and they're going to be it because it's going to be a travesty if anything happens to the rockers and so throughout the segment it feels as if that's going to happen they truly have you believing that it's these have all been mistakes it was just an accident that the nasty boy got bumped into Janetti and that Michaels didn't mean it and they're going to get back together and uh, Brutus says you know he's so excited that they're getting back to that everything's fine with the Rockers and they're going to move on and they have they like, give a big man hug to each other you know pat each other on the back and you think it's all good and they hold each other's hands up in the air afterwards and then out of nowhere Shawn Michaels super kicks Marty Janetti bam 
And the look on Brutus's face is great. I mean, it is genuine. Um, he's as surprised as the audience, and he's and sells it like crazy. And then Michael's throws him, throws Janetti through that window, which you, know, you can hear the audience in the background screaming because you know, this is probably off to the side a little bit from from the actual crowd back then. It didn't happen in the ring like a lot of it does now, and so you can hear the crowd screaming and stuff. And they're so mad at Shawn Michaels in that moment that he has ruined. The, the rockers, you know, and he, he is turned on them. Uh, and that was it. You know, you have one more match later on. The Really later on, they bring Janetti back in, and there's kind of one of those reunion matches where they wrestle as the rockers one more time, but they don't really, they don't, they don't dress alike. They, they just wrestle together, and they play the rockers' music. Um, but in reality, that was the end of the rockers. And it's, it was a pretty bold move. I mean, you're taking one of the top tag teams and just ending it and, and banking on that these two guys are going to go on and be singles wrestlers and, and bring money. Sean goes on and does, and unfortunately for, for Marty, it didn't happen that. It didn't go on that way. I mean, I really don't want to take anything away from Marty Jannetty. I jokingly announced Kevin last time as the only guy who thinks Jannetty was the better rocker. Then I went back and watched Midnight Rocker matches, and there's, there's a valid argument for that at times. Um, Marty Jannetty could do a promo and, and reel you right in. And um, I would say, you know, he, the moves in the ring, they needed each other to do every single one of them. In the, in the autobiography, Sherry talks uh, in, that, in that autobiography video, and she talks about how they would spend nights, you know, and she would get frustrated with them because they would spend all their time trying to come up with these new moves and even using uh, wrestling action figures to try to figure out if they could do the move with the wrestling action figure and could they actually do that in real life yeah. and could they take it to the ring and uh, she even describes it as well, why are they playing with dolls and then she realized well, they're not playing at all they're working they're working out a match and then would try to put that in the ring and that's how they came up with some of their their uh, big time moves and I even said last time you know when I saw the Hardy Boys for the first time I thought wow it's like seeing two Shawn Michaels well, I was wrong when I said that seeing the Hardy Boys was like seeing the Rockers it was like seeing the Midnight Rockers it was like seeing Janetti and Michaels. They were both extremely talented in-ring performers. And um, I hate that now when you watch this, I watched a show on the WWE Network that was talking about tag teams and when they break up and how one rises to the top. And they use the Rockers as the biggest example, the biggest example of that ever happening. And that because of how far you know, Shawn Michaels went up and how far, unfortunately, Janetti went down. And um, I hate that. I really do hate that. It unfortunately made Marty Jannetty a footnote that he didn't deserve. He was a tremendous tag team wrestler. Um, and if all you know of Marty Jannetty is the, the new Rockers, <laughs> where he met up with uh, Al Snow, if you remember this, anybody remember that? Yeah. The new Rockers. Oh, it was bad. What? <laughs> it yeah, no, not, no, he doesn't have a head yet. Uh, it, it's unfortunate. I remember that. I it's either. very brief. You'd have to really try <laughs> to find it. I was going to say, wow. Uh, that's a little, I don't yeah. But Rick, on the one you're talking about, we should go back and look. Look at all the tag teams split up. There's never been, both of them ever been superstars. Right. True. So many so many examples. So if you look, like you, you were saying, Harlem Heat, Booker T, and Stevie Ray. Right. Yeah, Booker T, straight to the top. Stevie Ray. Stevie Ray kind of coasts in the middle a little he bit. He was a after Slowly that. disappears, yeah. They're all like that. And, and that was one of the questions I was going to ask is do you, do you feel like maybe with them not being able to play out that storyline of them two battling each other did 
that probably propelled Michaels even more. Oh, definitely. And, uh, because because then you're not you're, you're not rehashing a an argument. You're having to be pushed into another storyline. Right. And I think that and when you look back, that's probably why she he was given Sherry at the time. I mean, my goodness, she could she walked down with the biggest names in the business. You know, oh, yeah. your Ted DiBiase's and so forth. Yeah. And that's who they they if they put Sherry with you, they they are putting a lot on your back too because you're expected yeah. to get over. And she was going to help. And um, maybe they don't do that. If Jeanette, if he yeah. can feud with Jeanette, and if that happens, maybe, you know, Shawn Michaels doesn't end up skyrocketing at that point, and Jeanette ends up being, you don't know. So, and that's that's kind of the what ifs, and I'm sure you know a lot of people have what if that one. That's um, the, uh, the, um, behind the doors, we don't get to see. Yeah, exactly. Make it. Yeah, and and who knows? We don't know because, like you said, you know, Jeanette gets uh, suspended quick thereafter. Maybe they had a huge push for him as a babyface, and that was the plan, really, after that feud and. Right. We don't, we, like I said, we just don't know, and all we do know is what happened in real history, yeah. and that is Shawn Michaels goes on to world heavyweight champion, yeah. huge matches, changes well, wrestling in a, in a big him, way. Really. They put the Intercontinental belt on him right after that. Yeah, it's quick. And then at Survivor Series, I had him fighting Bret Hart. Yeah, wow. it's quick. For the championship, oh, both of them. Right. That quick. And yet another example of a breaking up a tag team, and one goes to <laughs> a mega stardom, right. and Jim the Anvil kind of coasts along oh, in the oh, mid card, and yeah. um, you know, and I. You know, Bret Hart goes on to be a superstar in and fighting with with Shawn Michaels. It's um, question: You feel like that this type of angle gets gets re, you know a lot of angles we we see get reused mm-hmm. over and over again. Do you think that this has been used anymore or or anything? Cause because of that because of that fear of one ascending and one declining. I don't know, and like I said, I don't have any back. I, I don't have any access to backstage or anything. I'm just right. a fan mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, I'm just watching from the outside looking in, and it is exciting to you know, some of the stuff you get to see on the network now, where they do interviews and talk about different yeah. things, and it's really cool to to see kind of behind the curtain a little bit uh, more than I would ever have ever have access to. What they were hoping would happen was they would both become stars. Right. I don't think they were hoping one would rise to stardom and one wouldn't. I think in any time a tag team breaks up, they see potential in one or the other or both. And I think in this case, they saw potential in both, and they thought, wow, we can push them. Um, both. And then it just didn't happen. I don't know. I mean, turning on each other as a tag team is probably going to go on forever, and that's a great way to push different people. But um, I think in this case, it it was such a – to me, it's the, the best angle because a lot of people didn't see it coming. Because a lot of stuff that was going on backstage between the two of them was not oh, yeah. put out on TV. Uh, so we didn't really know how much they were really wanted to be separated. Um, and then the buildup with the, with, uh, and the barbershop made it, they really drew the audience in to say, hey, this isn't going to happen. And then boom, it did. And it shocked the world. And then it was like, hey, Sean's a new character. It's, you know, he's this, uh, it, you know, the he's the heartbreak kid. Bam. And then it's like, you know, who, who saw that coming? Who's... You know, if there's somebody out there who saw that this <laughs> angle was going to lead to that, to you know, there's there's yeah. no way. Because he was just a Shawn Michaels. He, yeah, he was just Shawn Michaels. Mm-hmm. But man, you go, I was talking, we were talking about this earlier. You go back and watch the interviews in AWA with the two of them and Jannetty's carrying it. Yeah. I mean, and that's because he's the more seasoned, he's the veteran. his name was first. You know, he's, he's the veteran. When they introduced him, yeah. Marty Jannetty and Shawn, Shawn Michaels. Michaels. Yeah. Well, they were heels in Memphis. I've yeah. watched, yeah. I've, you know, I'm the Memphis guy. They, they, they were heels. Yeah, they were real cocky and yeah, that was the, it. Was yeah. almost what Heartbreak Kid Shawn Michaels became. Yes, they both yes. kind of played yes. that character. Um, they were they, they were they, very they, into themselves. Very, we're the best. No one can beat us. Very you're lucky we're here. You're lucky we're here. Yeah, yeah. yes, kind of, yes. There was SummerSlam '88, right? Yeah, Survivor. Yeah, SummerSlam. 
What I remember the first time seeing him was SummerSlam '88, because that was the first. Yeah. That's that's that's, a, that's good memory. That's about nice. it. <laughs> I, I wish time and me got along better, so I'd be like, oh, in 1988, I'd be like, I don't even know. I couldn't tell you what happened. That 2008. Was the first I don't know. You, my mom and dad, but let me get SummerSlam. SummerSlam '88. That's your first paper you ever got. That's really cool. I always begged and begged and begged and no, it's too much. Like I begged for the Andre Hogan match, WrestleMania three. They wouldn't get it. They wouldn't get WrestleMania four. I had her get in that Hancock video. All right, thank you, Ricky. We'll take a short break and we'll be back. Morning King of the Cast, this is Dashing DJ, former tag team partner of Ravishing Rick. Just want to congratulate you guys on your first podcast. It was great to listen to you guys reminisce about the old times and uh, brings back a lot of great memories uh, wrestling. Uh, loved it and loved having a great time and uh, hanging out with Rick. It's formed bonds that last, last a lifetime and just want to wish you guys well on your venture. Congratulations. And now we got, hold on, give me that mic here, Mean Gene. Let me talk for a minute. Here we got it going on here. We got Hollywood. <laughs> that was real, man. I didn't know I was counting. I was like, whoa. That was <laughs> um, Mine was, I did the Hulk Hogan turning heel, basically going to the NWO. Well, back in the day, we all knew who the face of wrestling was, and that was Hulk Hogan especially in the 80s and the 90s. We had the yellow, the red, say your prayers, take your vitamins, Hulkamania, it was running wild. And then 94, Hogan signed with WCW and Billionaire Ted. So in 96, at the Bash of the Beach, the Outsiders and supposedly a mystery partner would show up. And they were supposed to fight Lex Luger, Sting, and the Macho Man, Randy Savage. When the match started, the Outsiders came down without their mystery partner. The Outsiders, of course, we still know was Kevin Nash and Razor Ramon. But they said when they walked down the ring that the mystery partner was in the building. The match was going back and forth. Luger, during the match, was knocked out. I didn't remember that one. And this was back in 96, so he was knocked out. They said they took him back out of the ring and took him to the back. So I guess he might have been really hell, really hurt. Was he, guys? Do y'all know? I don't either. I don't Who knows? Make it a point not to pay attention to Lex Luger. So. Right. Yeah. So Lex Luger was taken out of the match. Was, was he was he taken out to make it a tag match? Now? So two then it was, two. Then that's it was probably, two on two. That's, that's probably what I'm thinking what the base was. of it was also. Yeah, but I don't remember. So Sting and Savage continued the match against Hall and Nash. Well, during the match, all of a sudden, the music blares. Here comes Hogan. He's walking down in his red and his yellow, and the music's going crazy. Tony Schiavone and Dusty Rhodes went crazy about, here comes Hogan. Hogan's here to save the day. Well, in the meantime, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash jumped out of the ring. So at that point, everybody thought that, oh, he's here to save the day. Savage is hurt. Luger's already out. Sting, Sting, I think, was knocked out during that match. He was not not knocked out of the match, but he was like outside the ring. So Savage was the only one in there, and he was laying on his back. 
and Hogan comes down, and everybody's like, Dusty Rose is saying, we got it, we got him, here he comes, here he comes. And all of a sudden, he jumps in the ring, and he laid two atomic uh, leg drops on him. And then all of a sudden, Dusty Rhodes and Tony Schiavone were absolutely screaming, hollering, oh, it's the end of wrestling. It's the end of wrestling. Why in the world? Oh, Hogan's uh, buried himself now. He'll never be the same. He's ruined wrestling, all this stuff. And kind of find out he was the th third partner for Hall and Nash. And in the match, me and Gene went to interview Hogan, and the crowd started throwing garbage in the ring. Me and Gene was, like, handing, was trying to talk to Hogan, and there was water flowing all over me and Gene because you know he wore the big uh, tuxedos. It was getting all wet. He goes, what do you mean? And Hogan's like, said, we're the future of wrestling and there's a new group in town, the New World Order. And Hogan went to justify his actions saying he was bored of WCW and had grown tired of the constant pampering of the fans. After that night, then he became Hollywood Hulk Hogan and then he also said that billionaire Ted now has Hulk Hogan. So then at the end, if you really think about it, billionaire Ted had Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz for the Braves, and then he had Hall, Nash, and Hogan for WCW. So that was the turning of Hulk Hogan in the heel at that point. Questions. <laughs> Questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know something, brother. So when I think of Hulk Hogan early on in WCW, I'm thinking of like him him going against the Dungeon of Doom, right? Is that correct? Is that right? Like he's going to save us from the Dungeon of Doom? Somewhere in there. I think that's... I think that was before the heel turn. Well, yeah, that was definitely before yeah. the heel turn. But I'm talking about he was brought into WCW and it's like he's going to save us from the Dungeon of Doom and he's in the yellow and black still. I mean, the red yellow, and yellow, yellow still. Uh, does he go back be. to mm -hmm. WWF? Briefly, and then come back to WCW as the third member, or does he just disappear? No, he, he's he's actually still in WCW. Okay. with the red and yellow before. Okay, so I'm he right was in WCW because okay. he did win the belt from Flair not long after he got there. Okay, yes. okay, so oh, yeah, that, he was he was right in it. Yeah, it wasn't was, a surprise that he showed up because he was he was supposed to have been there anyway because he was. Yeah, he, he it was, was just headliner. here. Mm -hmm. He's coming out from the back mm -hmm. to, to save, save these guys mm -hmm. again because it was real. These guys, Hall and Nash, showed up, oh. and we didn't know that they had been not renewed their contracts from WWE. Mm -hmm, right. We didn't know. Everyone thought these are some WWE guys coming in wanting to take over the whole company. Because the first couple weeks, mm -hmm. remember, they bought tickets and they set out. Um, and they, yes. they sold it really well, and so well, when then they had the match, well, it, it was it, like, you know, and no one knew the mystery part. The outsiders, because these are these aren't our guys; these are outsiders Which made coming in great to try to take over. Great angle. And at that yeah. time, Bischoff thought they were still with the WWF. Oh, he was playing it up. Uh, he was his, still playing it. Yeah. He was there. They're from the WWF. Are you sure you're not going back yeah. to the WWF? Uh -huh. And they said, no, no, no. And then this Hogan. Everybody uh, sold it. And when he really came in the ring, I was watching the video, and it was really neat because when he came down from the ring, I mean, you got Dusty and Tony Schiavone. They're like, oh, here he comes. You know, the, the Savior's here, you know. He's going to save the day, and Savage is laid out in the middle of the ring, and all of a sudden, Hall and Nash and, leave, and, and, and all of a sudden, he just goes, you know, boom, leg drop. You know, Savage and Hogan you know, were, were, were such great friends, you mm -hmm. know, going all the way back to their WWF days. You know, So everyone thought, that, yeah, he is coming out to save the day. Thought, yeah. like Superman to save mm -hmm. the day. Yep. You know, and, and, it lead, and it leads to one of the, you know, probably one of the greatest 
storylines and, you know, basically, I guess you could call it a faction, you know, because everyone starts going NWO and they start the whole gimmick of spray painting everybody and spray painting titles. It was good. It was good for a while. But then then they start getting too many people. Well, it goes on and on Mm -hmm. and the failure for WCW to create some, another good angle would be their undoing. Uh They lived off this for Um, a couple years. Yeah. Later on, Savage joins the NWO. Yeah, and it's just a point to where you think we've ridden this horse long enough, you know. But I tell you what, it was hot. It was a hot angle. It got me back into watching. So you think that's how they DX started off that one? When they NWO, then all of a sudden DX started in WCW. DX was kind of maybe an answer to the WCW's NWO. That's what I was. I hadn't really ever thought about that. So you take that biggest icon of wrestling at the time, and you're going to turn him into a completely different character. You're going to turn him heel and ha- and put him in a group of people. And, you know, certainly it's still the top of the card, obviously. You're not changing it. You know, you're going to let, you're going to have that part of the show run the, run the show. And it does run the show, like you said, for like two years. But man, that's a, you have to give them some credit that that's a, a risk. Oh, yeah. You know, to stick your neck out and say, hey, we have Hulk Hogan. But we're not going to use him as Hulk Hogan. We're going to turn him into something else. Something else. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's right. that's a risk, and it and it worked. I mean, like Greg said, I mean, it got. It, I was flipping channels every Monday back and forth. I mean, at the time, um, we had this big giant screen TV on a big thick box TV. It's the first TV I knew. Uh, it's my friend Adam had it, and um, it had a. You could split the screen to two channels at the same time if you ran like your cable through. One straight to it and mm-hmm. split the other one through your VCR. You could get the split screen. Yeah, right. You'd have one right. each other. Mm-hmm. And on Monday nights, we would put Nitro on one and Raw on the other. And then what we do is flip with the one on the left. You'd have the audio, and the one on the right would be silent. And whenever we saw something really cool, we flip them so you could hear the audio of the one you wanted. And that's literally, I think, why he bought that TV. Like <laughs> so we could <laughs> we could do watch both at the same time. And a lot of that was NWO that that drew that yeah. drew the eyes off WWF mm-hmm. at the time to WCW. You say, hey, look what they're they're doing something completely different and new, and a lot of eyes turn that way, and, and you know, and it led to what the eighty three weeks of month, you know, mm-hmm. of was it eighty three weeks? That's what. Was? That's why that, that's why they love eighty three weeks of WW the WCW beats WWF and and uh, ratings wars the eighty three yeah. straight weeks. Um, you know, I'd say that you, know, you have to say the NWO is the reason and oh, and, yeah. and, and not just the Hogan turn I mean Hall and Nash oh, mm-hmm. it's a, a huge part of it um, you know obviously starting it all I mean you can't just give it all to Hogan but but taking the biggest star in wrestling and, and taking that risk like that's huge and, and man it paid off for a while <laughs> for a while but like any wrestling any wrestling thing you've got to take you've got to come up with new stuff you've got to make it new Oh, and yeah. it just didn't happen. They yeah. tried. I mean, I, I was for lack of trying, I'd say. I mean, I do feel like they tried some different things, but it just, none of it ever landed. But it, man, it was great. It, it was a great, great angle. Um, and, and totally shocked. I mean, shocking. That was, the, yeah, you didn't see it coming. I mean, the fans, like like Kevin said, the fans were throwing oh, uh, some paper, uh, paper and wrappers and beer cans. Yeah, oh, everything was in the room. They were fired up. When you, when, when you get that reaction, that's that's and that's good. good. That's good. Well, especially if you're doing a heel turn. That's the reaction, yes. man. That's the oh, that's the warrior uh, warrior. That's the uh, um, 
Yeah, Road Warrior. That's what I'm looking for. That's the Road Warrior pop for, oh, yeah. for a heel is when they're throwing oh, yeah. going nuts and just angry oh, yeah. that you went from their hero to all of a sudden turning on them. And man, that was that a was that a reaction? And it, I mean, I can remember it lasted for weeks. I can remember oh, yeah. just weeks and weeks of, of it still being, you know, solid and must-see TV. Oh, yeah. That you oh, just couldn't yeah. believe it that, you know... He's going to come out there and not be telling you to drink your milk and eat your vitamins. He's going to be playing that guitar. He's going to be playing that belt like a guitar and being a punk. And uh, just, I don't know. It was it was something. that black is on his beard. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, like. oh, yeah. And I can remember um, getting on the computers at college, um, looking stuff up, you know, on dirt sheets that it, it, I think online onslaught maybe was one. And you could get a little bit of insight. Uh, you could certainly get obviously the the results of tape shows, so right, you right. knew if they changed something along the way uh, yeah. or things yeah. like that. But um, so like like on my angle where it was a week, <laughs> it was almost right. a year, and the year changed before mm. they ever showed it. Right. It was yeah. taped in ninety one. It doesn't air until ninety. You know, a week later in ninety two. Mm. Um, by then everybody would have known. Yeah, I was shocked when you told when you read that that it was. Several weeks, yeah, years, there. and back then you could keep it a secret, but now you just or you could have a match and it never happened, but now you can't. And then that's what's amazing about the NWO thing is that that's really an era where that was really starting to pick up a lot on the internet yeah. and people were really starting to pay more attention because of the WCW having the Monday Night Show, um, and that started to pick up and they still got it past us. You know, they still got the outsiders kind of past. They still got Hogan's heel turn pass mm-hmm. you know and that maybe that's what WCW gave us through that angle was the the, the idea that you still could get something past yep. uh, the internet if you did it right okay we got our next big headliner here making his debut excited to see this young man Jason Gary it's fixing to get real business to get ready to pick up alright Jason tell us what you got I got CM Punk, the pipe bomb. In the pipe bomb speech, she said, the only thing that is real is me. And the fact that day in and day out for almost six years, I've proved to everybody in the world that I'm the best on the microphone, in the ring, and even on commentary. I mean, I'm, I'm wanting to know more about this, seriously. Because yeah. you know me, Jason, I'm the old man. I'm the old man wrestling. <laughs> so tell me when this thing took place, man. About Two, what time? It was frame. June of 2011. Had he done all that straight edge angle and all that business? He had already done that. And okay. He had already done the new Nexus. The new Nexus. Yeah. Okay. And it was kind of like, tell me seriously, because this is how he really felt, right? Yes. I mean, he felt these things about how he felt like he was not being used right. properly. Yeah. Did he feel also like he wasn't getting much of a creative say? Didn't like all that, you know, being everything scripted for him? Or, I mean, that all was real, right? How he—that's how CM Punk, the person, really felt. Correct? Yeah. And Vince gave him the opportunity to go off script until, like, behind the scenes, they were saying to open up the. It made me excited as a wrestling fan. Yeah, it felt see like behind it felt like it was real when you know it was scripted, but it wasn't. But it got me more interested again, and then it seemed real. It yeah. seemed like the like he had gone out there. The WWE just kept the cameras rolling. Yeah, and then they brought they were doing it to bring the money to the bank. That if he won, he was taking the title with him. But Vince, behind all closed doors, we didn't know had already signed him to a big contract. Okay. 
Okay. And then they it was great, you know, he goes off the pay per view and with the W championship and they hadn't done that, you know, the road scared when Medusa did it and took the belt to WCW right. and threw it away. And Vince didn't want somebody else doing that again. So it played off that story. Played off that angle story played off another it, angle. And it built it huge. So how much did that were they trying in any way to kind of emulate the Montreal situation with Shawn Michaels and Hart? No, I think they were just doing it to try to get a clean loss or get the belt off of Cena. Okay, what I was reading. Okay. Yeah, I can't believe yeah. it. I can't believe nobody picked the Montreal Screwjob because that's the ultimate. Like what was reality right. and what? And this this kind of had that same feel, did it not? Of like. Yeah. What's reality and what's not? Cause and he what's won. not? And when you blur the lines like that, I think that's really good for it's, wrestling. It's really I think it makes for yeah. us makes us see behind the closed doors what we always want to see, and we don't know, and we don't know what's real and what's not. This, I think, you hit the nail on the head, Greg. That the pipe bomb is one of those situations where it felt so real, and it went on for years and years, and people still to this day, you know, they don't. Some people still feel like. Still love CM Punk so much because they think that actually happened. That he, he was brave enough up. to stand up and go out yeah. and do that. Yeah. So, it, yeah. you know. And then the other thing I thought, well, I hate. Well, I don't know if it's storyline or not. You know, he was champion for 434 days, wow. and he was still never the main event for that year. Really? If you go back and look at the cards, they never had him as the main event. Oh. Who was the main event for? I need to go back. And do y'all know? It probably, be, I mean, I guess it'd be probably be Cena. Cena. That doesn't seem right. He was the champ for 434 days, and if you go back, that's a long longest. That's a long title. Longest champ, I think, they said since Hogan. Wow, had carried the belt. Mm -hmm. I guarantee it was Cena. It was Cena. Because I don't think they were looking at Cena has not carried the belt 434 straight days. I don't think he had. Well, I see that. I see what you're saying though. So CM Punk's had, you know, they're trusting him with the belt and saying, "Hey, you're our guy." But then when the matches start to get booked, and it's like, who's going to be the the head of the paper? They never had him. It's not him. Yeah, mm-hmm. no. So and he's your champ, and you would right. think that, that, yeah, I mean, you would think that the champ would always be headlined, but it wasn't. And I think you know we're also ushering into a different era of wrestling where the belts are starting to mean a little less in the sense of who oh, the yeah. top people are. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, that belt in particular is not the case. You're, you know, right. that's more used the Intercontinental Belt or things like that. We're moving around a ton back then, and, and that particular time you know changing hands pretty frequently here's a belt the top belt not being changed hands put on a guy and then he's not being used if you're not looking a certain way at certain points in the wwe history it's hard you know to be the guy vince i I, my opinion vince really wants a certain used to be a big guy and cm punk might have been fighting that when i think of early gimmicks for cm punk you know i think of things like um the straight edge society um, which does play a little bit on the idea that he of his real persona in real life. Because he has it on. Um, you know, because he, you know, yeah, because of his tattoos and stuff, and um, and that was a tough gimmick. I mean, you're you're toting a lot of people with you, uh, getting a, you're trying to get in a, in a group of people over. You're getting in the ring and giving promos that people don't kind of want to hear at that time in wrestling, and so that was a tough one to get over. And then to take that into a, a great singles career, um, to where you got. Everybody on your side. I mean, all of wrestling fans pretty much at that time were clamoring for CM Punk. They saw that he was being held back. Uh, you know, he had the belt. He wasn't the main event. They saw the things too. So then he comes out there and sits on that 
you know, stage you know, that microphone in his hand and starts talking to the people and they start to hear what they've, yeah. they've been saying, what they've been thinking. And they hadn't, that had never been done I, that I can remember before no. where, you know, maybe a little bit of the Stone Cold Steve Austin days where some of his stuff would come off as, hey, you know, he's getting to do or getting to say things that everybody would want to say to their boss kind of a thing. Right. But you always had that feeling that it was part of the storyline. Right. And I think that's what makes this such a huge angle yeah. is that it didn't, it wasn't really part of a big storyline. No. It was a one-time incident that, boom, changed all of wrestling. Yeah. You know, letting more of the reality in to say, hey, I'm not being used right. Yeah. Not, I'm not winning. I'm not being used right mm-hmm. in the business. And that's, that's we don't get to see that Is on that TV. the first time that, like, wrestling talk was, yeah. like, spoken by a wrestler? Yeah. Like the backstage talk or, you know, well, they said that being used right. We all thought he was dropping character. He was Philip Brooks giving us that promo. He wasn't CM Punk. Um, and they finally cut his mic after he started um, telling personal stories about Vince McMahon. And then the, and we know about his bully campaigns. And then that's when they cut his mic. When he was attacking. Which Vince makes it McMahon. really real. Yeah. That makes it real. Yeah. I mean, it, uh-huh. I, I, I believed it. I, I believed it until they just told me just now. <laughs> Kevin, I did too. I did too. I, I swear to you, I did. I'm really bad. Thanks, Jason. You don't tell me there's no Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Appreciate that, buddy. <laughs> so, uh, we won't be having him back anymore. <laughs> Spoiler alert. All right, Brother Jay, tell us about the Battle of the Big Boys. Well, thank you, Greg. Uh, angle that I took was the Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan angle, but specifically the idea that Andre the Giant could not be slammed. They played this angle up for a long time because I could remember when they'd actually have Andre in the ring or in his matches. And he would stand there and some guys would come in and try to try to slam him and they, they would just hesitate and they couldn't get it. I mean, I remember even Big John Studd, they had him try to come in and try to body slam him and everything. He couldn't do it. And then, you know, he was the next biggest guy in WWF at the time. And, you know, they, they, he just, he, everyone just thought... Andre had always been this huge force in wrestling that, you know, he couldn't be slammed. Well, we all know that, yes, he had been slammed in matches before, you know. Um, actually, I think the first time they said that he was slammed was actually by uh, Harley Race in uh, AWA, I believe, at the time. This really started on an episode of Piper's Pit. Uh, Roddy Roddy Piper had, was having them on there, and they were going to have a celebration for Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan because they were both great friends. Everybody knew that they were friends, and you know, so they were going to celebrate both of them. Hogan for his three-year reign as WWF champion, and they were going to give him this nice trophy in celebration of it. And Andre the Giant for him, you know, being undefeated, you know, for. Uh, for, for at the time, I believe it was 15 years he'd gone undefeated, and so they were they were going to give him both trophies, and so they announced it on Piper's Pit that they were going to do it. So the next week on Piper's Pit, they come out there and they have these two trophies, and they see Hogan's, and Andre sees his, and well, Andre's is quite a bit smaller than Hogan's, so we start seeing some jealousy start rumbling inside inside Andre and so so 
it actually continues on into the next week's Piper's Pit. And I, I went back and watched the, the episode, and it actually starts off with Piper and Jesse Ventura in it, and Jesse going up to Piper and going, is your guy here? Come on, tell me, is your guy here? And so Piper goes, of course my guy's here, and brings out Hogan. Hogan comes out and, you know, and everything, and so and uh, Jesse goes, well, my guy's here, he's here, let me bring him on out. The eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant, brings, brings Andre out. Well, Andre actually has someone with him. Just so happened, it was Bobby the Brain Heenan. And of course, Bobby the Brain Heenan hated Hulk Hogan. And so, and Hogan immediately starts going, Andre, Andre, what's this? What's he doing here? Why is he here? So, you know, so you, you, you're kind of seeing the turn right there. Well, Heenan bumps, uh, you know, butts, butts his way in and accuses Hogan and says, the only reason you've been friends with Andre this whole time is so that he wouldn't challenge you for the WWF title and you wouldn't have to defend your belt against this man because you know you can't beat him. So they, they start, you know, Hogan's going, no, no, Andre, that's not, that's not right, not right. And so Hogan puts his hands on, on Andre's shirt and just saying, please, tell me this isn't right, you know. And Andre just tells him, get your hands off me. And they're like, whoa, what's, you know, so it's, it, it, Andre's making the turn. And Hogan's going, no, 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 don't, tell, me, tell me this isn't true, this isn't true. And he goes, he goes, listen, Hogan, I'm here to challenge you for that WWF title at WrestleMania. Hogan's like, no, 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 falls to his knees, no, it's not true. And Andre and Heenan turn and, and walk away. So we get, we, we get to the match and WrestleMania, which... WrestleMania 3, and still to this day, it's the second largest attendance in WrestleMania history. So when you go from WrestleMania 3 to we're coming up on WrestleMania 38, 39, something, somewhere around there, you know, and we're still talking about Pontiac Superdome, Detroit, Michigan, where it actually had an attendance of over 90,000, as a matter of fact. It was 93,173, and it only ranks behind... The one at uh, at uh, uh, AT&T Stadium over in Arlington, and that was 101,000, and that was just at WrestleMania 32. So this actually went as the highest, you know, really the highest attended WrestleMania for decades. And so you know, and, th- and this was really a time that I think that this match and this whole storyline brought wrestling into the mainstream. Grill Monsoon actually called it it's the irresistible force meets the immovable object. So that tells me, you know, they're still playing up that angle of, you can't move Andre. Andre can't be, you know, he, he can't be moved. How's Hogan going to beat him if he can't move him or can't slam him? Match begins, and immediately Hogan goes for the slam. Tries to get that body slam. Tries to get him up, and actually can't get him up, and Andre falls on him. Andre falls on him, of course. Can't, it's hard, 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 to, hard to get Andre off of you, and he gets a one Two, and it looks like he gets a three, but he actually sneaks a shoulder out underneath Andre, and get, gets out from the, on, on a two and three quarter count, I guess. So you know, there can't can't slam Andre. Almost leads to him losing the belt. In an interview with Hulk Hogan, he actually talks about how that Andre was really, you know, he was really coming to his last days 
in wrestling and that he had such a debilitating back injury at the time, Andre really couldn't do much. But one thing that, that I did when, I, when researching this, um, I, I, I will say, and, and this leading in, in, into the match also, it was, it was said, um, this was actually by Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and he said, uh, the script called for Hogan to win the match and keep the title. Um, and and uh, Hacksaw recalls, he said, no one knew if Andre would actually take the fall. Hacksaw says that Andre, he could be an irritable giant. Everybody knew the script and the way the script was going to go. But Andre hadn't said yes or no. And so nobody knew. There was a little tension backstage with that. And Hogan didn't know if Andre would go uh, would go up for the slam or not. And so, you know, so going into the match, there, there was a lot of controversy as to is Andre going to go for this or not. So anyway, so back to the match. You know, they after Hogan gets out from the pin, they wrestle a little bit more, and a lot of it is it's actually not a really a good technical match at all because a lot of it is spent with Andre having Hogan in a bear hug because of his injury. Well then, while they're in the, uh, you know, Hogan gets pumped up well, the way the way they always did. You know, gets that gets that rejuvenation, gets that gets that that Hulk. He hulks up, you know, yeah. and uh, and so Andre says to him, "Slam." And Hogan even even pauses, like, "Did I really hear that right?" And he goes, "Slam," and he knew that Andre was calling for the body slam, and so he goes and he he hulks out of it. He gets him, hits him with a couple forearms, picks him up, and slams him. While he's getting him in the, in the slam, he hears Andre, leg drop. Andre was ready for it to be over. And so Hogan goes, does the leg drop, pins, one, two, three. Hogan keeps the belt. And so, and really a lot of people said with this whole thing, it was actually the passing of the torch from Andre being the main headliner that had toured around to all of the different territories and being the main attraction as to I'm giving it over to Hogan. This is my way out. And so, you know, that's why that's why I took the whole angle of can you know Andre not being able to be slammed because that played such an integral part in this whole match was the was the body slam. The close pin at the beginning and the fact that it ended up actually being called for and no one knew was Andre going to call for it or not. And so that, that, that's why that's why I really like this angle, and it really even continued on because they ended up fighting some more. Andre ended up winning the belt later on from Hogan, and actually trying to sell it to Ted DiBiase because he had teamed up with DiBiase, and it went on and actually went into WrestleMania four, which I believe was the WrestleMania was the World Heavyweight Tournament that I believe Savage ended up winning, and Hogan and Andre actually fought in that one, and I believe, and you can check me on this, I believe they both got, got a double disqualification on that, and both of them were eliminated, and everyone was shocked as to, okay, who's going to win this now? And of course, it ended up being Savage. So it went on for a few years. Andre did some things for, for a few years, and I think he actually retired about four years later, but he, it was basically on a limited contract then because his injuries had taken care of it. But like I said... That that was my that was my favorite angle and that's why I think it's the best angle because it, it played such an integral part in that match and that was Andre not being able to be slammed. I think yeah. that uh, I think you had the body slam to set up the leg drop. 
And so that's yes. what they kind of played up so much was that how can Hogan wins matches when he body slams and does his leg drop. That's Correct. a signature move. That's how he wins. How's he going to win this match without it? And then that's kind of what they played up. And then lo and behold, it gets to the match and it's with a body slam and a leg drop. And I think that you know it's that's pretty cool that that it, that's how you know they build that up. Like it's never if he can't body slam, then what can he do? Well, then he ends up he can. And it man, it makes mm-hmm. him you know stronger than ever. Mm-hmm. And putting a guy over to make him the strongest ever, you know that's pretty. That's pretty big. That's pretty big. Mm-hmm. I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah it was passing him the torch. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. That's, that's all it was. Uh, absolutely, really, and thing. a cool way to do it. Yeah. Yes. yes, that's the way it was done. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and the guys decide, and it's kind of cool because Andre, he decided when he was going to do it and who he was going to do it for. Yeah. And uh, you know, Andre's dealings go back. Before Vince Junior to Vince Senior, you know oh, yeah. all the territories and everything, and so yeah, it, it was a cool, definitely a, a cool angle, but a great, maybe like Jay, like you said, not the greatest technical match at right. all. Yes, but my goodness, Andre, you know, like his back was killing, and I think you even see. Was that the WrestleMania that they rode the little yes. carts yeah. out? Yes, it was. I just always remember Andre. And he had to be in so much pain, just kind of like leaning. Mm-hmm. And Bobby Heenan was in the car with him, yes. and they were mm-hmm. departing, and people were, you know, throwing mm-hmm. throwing things down on him and everything. But yeah, yeah, that was uh, kind of a neat thing. Yeah, and uh, you know, kind of back to what you know with Kevin talking about the Hulk Hogan turn, you know, and them littering the ring with trash. You know, Andre was had been a had been a had been a babyface for most most of his career right. and and everyone loved him. All of a sudden he's turning bad and going with Bobby Heenan and that's part of they were throwing stuff at him and, yeah. and everything. Now, I will say that, that this is an article from Maximum two thousand seventeen that says, you know, the match, you know, which remains one of the most significant in WWE history, uh, was set up weeks prior after Andre, uh, you know, a longtime good guy, made the heel turn. Thank you, Jason. That leaves only one match left for tonight, and that comes to us from Mr. Greg Hereford. Greg, take it away. Thank you, guys. Um, the one I picked is my favorite of all time, and it's one that I uh, remember very vividly. It's the Jerry Lawler, Andy Kaufman, or as David Letterman says, Andy Kaufman uh, angle. Andy Kaufman, uh, I won't go into a lot about his career, but he was um, a stand-up comedian, entertainer, and um, did a TV show, was part of a TV show called Taxi, like the late 70s, early 80s. He was very different comedian. In fact, he didn't even really consider himself a comedian, more of an entertainer. The key connection here, so like, if you're listening out there, just look him up and you'll, you'll, you'll find some stuff about Andy Kaufman. But the key connection here is Andy Kaufman loved pro wrestling growing up. And um, he um, worked this actually into his comic routine in proclaiming himself to be the intergender wrestling champion of the world. And he would wrestle uh, women. And and as part of his act and things, he offered them money if they could beat him and whatnot. And so he played it up. And um, he uh, had grown up on Long Island, New York, so he was familiar with the old WWWF, Worldwide Wrestling Federation, and Vince, which would have been produced by Vince McMahon's Jr.'s father, Vince Sr. 
And so it is reported by more than one source that he was backstage at the Madison Square Garden taking in a wrestling event, WWF, sometime in late 1981. And he approached Vince Sr. about bringing this act and incorporating it into the World Wrestling Federation. And Vince Sr. dismissed Kaufman's idea, saying he was not about to bring show business into his pro wrestling company. Okay? Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Just remember, that's a, that's a big moment. He was still convinced and he really wanted to get into wrestling in some way, incorporate this. So he had a friend named Bill Apter who was a wrestling reporter, photographer, and he did a lot of the wrestling magazines, uh, writing and producing of those wrestling magazines, especially in the 1980s. I, I used to love to go to the newsstand, and that's how we found out, you know, talk about Pony Express, finding out who's wrestling and everything and who's winning in these other areas of the country. So Bill Apter introduced him to Jerry Lawler. He said, you know what? I know a place where the anything goes, and I think they would love you and welcome you. So he calls Jerry Lawler, and Lawler was thrilled to get a call from Andy. Lawler loved the idea of Andy coming down to Memphis and wrestling women. And so he pitched it to Jerry Jarrett, who owned, and him and Lawler kind of co-owned the area. I, Jerry Jarrett may have been the, the main guy. Jerry Lawler had a, had a part in the company and, and say. But Jerry Jerry loved it too. So the initial deal was only one a one-time appearance. So Lawler had Andy come down and they began cutting these promos where he was degrading women and saying that they're only good at making meals and taking care of babies. And it just got so much heat. Uh, Jerry Lawler said that uh, the TV station in Memphis that aired them was saying, hey, you've got to stop airing these things on the wrestling because people get mad they're calling the station because he was insulting the south and and women and so they brought him in and uh he would i mean he would really like they i guess they would pick women out of the crowd i don't know but it was it was a real match and he would kind of let them you know get advantage and then he would you know he would he, he would do all the heel type things about taking cheap shots and just get people I mean, irate, man, and, and talk trash over the microphone. Well, one night, I don't know how many times they brought him back. It was a few engagements. But one night, he gets this lady named Foxy Jackson in, and she's tough. She's a Memphis, I believe she's a Memphis resident. And she was, I mean, Andy was really struggling. And he finally, he came out on top. And uh, Jerry Lawler was around ringside, you know, and maybe he, and I think he was even maybe coaching her and helping her some. But after Andy had won, and of course he did all kinds of insane things, promised if anybody could beat him, he'd give him $1,000, he'd shave his head. He even offered that he, he would marry the winner. Andy was single at the time, so it was crazy stuff. But people were coming to watch it. And so... Um, after the match with Foxy, Andy was rubbing Foxy's face in the mat and giving her just all kinds of grief. And the crowd started chanting, and Lawler gets up and uh, just kind of out of improv, you know, this is not planned, but he improvised, and he pulled Andy off of Foxy and shoved him down. Well, the house blew up. I mean, this is in the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum. So the house blew, people are going crazy. Andy Kaufman, um, you know, it was completely unscripted. Andy got to his feet furious 
and uh, Lawler believed it. Lawler thought, hell, he's, he's mad. Andy took to the microphone, yelled how he was going to sue Lawler, uh, and he carried on, just, just carried on and on and on. Lawler so much believed it, he went back to the back and told Jerry Jarrett, I think we're going to get sued. He really thought they did. Andy Kaufman comes back, and they talk, and they said, that was great, great. Now, he'd not come to wrestle men, but now Lawler, with this little interaction, they knew something had to change. And Lawler came into the ring, of course, to defend the women's honor and the city, his city of Memphis. But the truth was this. Truth was, number one, Andy was getting pretty close to getting beat by one. Because <laughs> Foxy gave, and if you watch, Foxy really did. She was tough. And Lawler, being the, you know, seeing the dollar signs, realized this could be a huge payday and was ready to make this match between he and Andy Kaufman. So, um, April 5th, 1982 was the first match. Now, they shot they shot other promos. If you get a chance to see them on YouTube, they are hysterical. Andy Kaufman starts making promos. He, and he always played it up. Hi, I'm Andy Kaufman. I'm a big star from Hollywood, and I'm going to come down. When I come down to Memphis, and when I come to the ring, and I shake your hands, your people's hands are greasy. Now, I want to show you what this is. This is a bar of soap. It's soap, S-O-A-P, not soap or soap, it's soap. Now what you do, you, un you take this out and you lather it up and you put your hands underneath the water. He did this. He said, and you make up a lather and you put it on, and, and, and then he had one on toilet paper. Like, do you ever smell bad? Like you, and he said, now this is toilet paper. And he would do these like PSA, public service. People were going crazy. The world. So they played these leading up to this match. So people wanted, I mean, these people wanted their hero, Jerry Lawler, to kill this guy. So they get into the match. Over 8,000 people attend that night of the match. And so Andy's mocking Jerry and everything. And so Jerry leans over and says, go ahead and get me in a headlock, which Andy, you know, plays it up and he does, to which Jerry just leans back and just drops it. And then he gets Andy and he pile drives him which was automatic disqualification. So, But then the fans are still going right, so he pile drives them again. And people are going crazy. Now, referee Jerry Calhoun leans over to tell him, you know, hey, you are right. And so Andy says, I'm not moving. And he, I'm not moving until I get an ambulance and a stretcher. I mean, he's not moving, but he tells this like, and he goes over and tells Lawler, he's not moving. And so Lawler and Jerry Jared are like, it's going to cost a few hundred dollars so they go over there, and he said, don't worry, I'll pay it. Just get an ambulance. So they bring an ambulance. It's about 15, 20 minutes. People haven't left the arena. They bring an ambulance. They put him on a stretcher. And they he goes to a Memphis hospital, spends three nights in the Memphis hospital. He's not really hurt, but he, I mean, that's how, that's the lengths that they went. Um, so that was the end of it for a while. Jerry Lawler gets a call from Andy Kaufman. During the summer, that was what, April? In the summer, mm -hmm. sometime he said, hey, how would you like to be on David Letterman's show? Jerry Lawler said, I said, let me think about it. Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> so the David Letterman show, it was called The Late Show with David Letterman. This is in 1982. They had him up July 28th. And they go to the Rockefeller Center and they meet. And Andy won't meet with Jerry. And he's still in playing it up. And he says, um, Jerry goes, and the producer says, here's what we've talked about. We're going to have you guys come out. 
We're going to show Andy's, a few of Andy's promos that were writing, you know, derogatory things about the South and women. We're going to show you your match, a little clip, you pile driving him. Um, you might have a little bit of exchange. We'll take a break. We'll come back. It kind of turned a little bit. And we're going to end the thing that y'all are going to apologize to each other. Andy's going to apologize for what he said. You're going to apologize, Jerry, for pile driving and dropping him on his neck, on his head. Mm-hmm. And they're going to close. Andy, I've heard Andy was going to sing. I've also heard that they were going to do a duet. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. <laughs> That's how they were going to end the segment. So, Jerry goes back to his hotel room near the Rockefeller Center in New York. He gets a call from Andy. They did this about 10 o'clock because the show was taped at 5 and then they showed it. Um, Andy said, well, what'd you think? And Jerry said, what'd you think about? Jerry says, about what? About what they want us to do. He said, oh, I guess it's fine. He said, it's just a shame, though, because once we apologize, you know, we won't have any more heat. Our angle, our feud, or be over. He said, I know that's too bad. And then Jerry says that Andy paused on the other end of the line. He said, what if um, we had a little bit after the heated exchange, instead of it turning into apologize, what if you just hauled off and slugged me? What if you just hauled (laughs) off and slugged me? And Lawler said, well, Andy, I don't think we could really do that because we might get arrested or something. (laughs) He said, I know, but wouldn't that be something? And that's all that was said. That was all this. So they go to the show. And um, they bring Jerry Lawler out first. There's about 600 people there. They boo. And Andy comes out. And they, just like they planned, they show a couple of the clips. David is kind of, David Letterman's kind of leading them on and saying, well, Andy, why'd you do that? And Jerry, that, aren't you, you know, didn't you realize he wasn't a real wrestler? Blah, blah, blah. Kind of goes through. And so they go gets a little heated, and Dave's got a bell underneath. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, break it up. We'll take a break. So they take a break. When they come back, this is when it's supposed to turn. So they get up to the point to where they're going to start apologizing, and um, David Letterman says, cueing, he says, Jerry, do you think you owe Andy an apology? And Jerry, for some odd reason, says, no, I really don't think I do. He's He shouldn't have... He shouldn't have been making fun of my sport. I take what I do serious. It feeds my family. And mm-hmm. Jared, and then Andy Kaufman didn't miss a beat. He was like, well, you know, I feel like I take it advantage. And then it goes like this. I tried to write this down best I could. Um, Andy says, I could have sued you for everything you're worth, only I didn't because I'm not that kind of guy. To which Jerry responded, well, what kind of guy are you, Andy? <laughs> the look on David Letterman's face is like, Jerry says, I think he knew that this is going awry. They're getting ready to go to commercial break, and Jerry Lawler says, watching it, it's like an out-of-body experience. He stood up, and he smacked Andy Kaufman. He said, as hard as I could. He said, I slapped. He, he was telling Stone Cold Steve Austin on a podcast. He said, I slapped taste right out of his mouth. Knocked him out the back of his chair. <laughs> and uh, they go to break. Uh, Andy is just... So they get Lawler off the set. Andy is cussing up a storm. And so they bring Jerry back to close. And Andy comes out and saying, I'll sue you. I'm sorry, Dave. And he makes eye contact with uh, Jerry and grabs some coffee off Dave's desk and throws it at him. I mean, it's total... Ma- it's just improv. They had not only mentioned it that one time. And um, it was uh, it, it was just really something. 
Um, uh, NBC um, threatened to never have Andy back on the air, and Kaufman threatened to sue him for two hundred million. And it was just a, it was so huge though. It got in the New York Times, all the papers. It brought a lot of PR to wrestling, and they they cashed in on this because then Andy would come back down to Memphis, and I was telling the guys before we came on air here uh, that I was I got the privilege as a kid to go to Rupp Arena and watch one of these handicap matches that Andy would pick a really good wrestler. Like in Lexington here at Rupp Arena, I remember it was Ken Patera, big strong man, Olympian, and him and Ken Patera wrestled Jerry Lawler. And then Andy Kaufman would get with Jimmy Hart in the first family. He'd put a bounty out on anybody that could pile drive Lawler. And they used this for quite some time. Uh, most of the rest of 82 and a lot of 1983 draw big houses. And I mean, people were, I mean, they just wanted to see Andy get killed. And Andy told Lawler, if I could just not do any of the acting stuff and just do wrestling, I would. He loved it. He really loved the wrestling. The rivalry was winding down and um, the opportunities for Andy was drying up. Around Thanksgiving of 83, Andy Kaufman began noticing a nagging cough, and um, he did some scans, and he had lung cancer, even though he was a real healthy guy. And unfortunately, on, in, on May 16, 1984, Andy Kaufman passed away. So not very long after this incident with Jerry, he was just Jerry Lawler. He was just 35 years old. The legacy is this. Andy Kaufman really changed, Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler really changed wrestling and brought the sports entertainment angle into it whether they knew it or not they were so ahead of their time it was a revolutionary uh, type of thing that they were doing Jerry Lawler who later on would work and still does work I believe for the WWE said Vince Jr. later told him he was so jealous of Memphis during that time because they had Andy Kaufman and Vince Jr.'s father had said no mm -hmm. um, and of course Vince would later build Wrestlemania as we know into a huge sports entertainment um, and not too many years after the Lawler Kaufman thing, we would have the rock and wrestling era with uh, Cindy Lauper and Lou Albano on that angle and Mr. T being at the first WrestleMania. And so I picked this one not just because, as you know, my love for Memphis, all things Memphis wrestling, but uh, also I think the significance of this, it, it is just such a cool angle. I could watch that, that, that segment on David Letterman over and over again. It is must-see TV, guys. It is so funny. And to watch David Letterman's... I mean, they had no idea. Can you imagine getting on there and doing that? And only two people that knew that was going to go down. And it wasn't even that well-planned. Andy Kaufman just said, what if? Because Letterman didn't know, did he? Had no idea. Legitimately had no idea. And uh, they just rode that thing. And it's a shame um, that... Um, Andy Kaufman would have been such a good fit for other things, but I'm glad that he gave us this. So I say, uh, God bless you, Andy, and thank you for giving us what I think is the granddaddy of all angles. It definitely ushered in a new era. Wasn't there rumors at one time when Andy Kaufman died that it was because of Lawler's pile drivers? At one time, I thought I heard that. You are right on, Mr. <laughs> Memphis Wrestling, too, because just like... Jimmy Hart came out and had the audacity. They had no, they had no uh, boundaries or that nothing was off limits. He claimed, yes, that Jerry Lawler's pile drivers had killed Andy Kaufman. 
They were that crazy. It was 20 years before Jerry Lawler would open up and really say we were friends. Mm -hmm. um, he said that when they had that first match, that wrestling promoters from all over the country, back then they would send telegrams. Thank you for sticking up for our business. Um, Andy Kaufman's parents, when they made the movie about... Would Jim Carrey play uh, Man on the Moon? Jerry Lawler got to meet Andy's parents. Andy's father said, man, we hated you. We really thought, I mean, we really thought you had hurt our son. And yeah, it, it, it was so, nobody knew. And they just, we're, we're living in a different, we were living in a different time then. But I'll, I'll tell you, Jerry Lawler and Andy Kaufman are geniuses. And it was just, it's a, it's really something. I mean, I, I, uh. Uh, I, I, it's it just it's amazing to watch their chemistry to improv that now man just a lot of good memories and uh, thank you for letting me share uh, about it hopefully uh, hopefully it'll bring back some good memories for you all too it was well, quite a fun well even for that angle to you know like you said to make it to make it into the movie and to make it into, into Hollywood and be retold you know yeah. as part of uh, Man in the Moon that, that's pretty awesome it did a lot for Jerry's career too mm -hmm. I believe you yeah. know it got Jerry Lawler, and I say Jerry like I know, I'd love to know him, but it got Jerry Lawler kind of away from just this Memphis territory he got in the New York papers and the wrestling, not just the New York wrestling scene or national magazines, but in the New York Post. I mean, that was front page, like, <laughs> so. And see, it was back then, there was no internet. Because I can remember you having those magazines. Yeah, we'd look. To find, yeah. you would say, oh, we've got this guy. Won a match down in this part of the states, yeah. or part of the country. Country, yeah, yeah. I think what's amazing about that angle is that it got into mainstream media, and it and it stayed there. It, it's you know you talked about the movie, but there's REM songs about yes. mm -hmm. about the incident yeah. there uh, between Jerry and um, Andy, and it just it was that opportunity. There were other times you think about the Vader uh, interview overseas where he the guy asks him if it's uh, if wrestling's fake and he gets up and puts him in the choke and it, and you know basically gets kicked off the tour. Yes. Uh, but uh, you know, so there are times like that that happen. But this was one that was set up in Memphis wrestling and then becomes a worldwide phenomenon, which then you know stays in the wrestling you know world and in the real you know and in the mainstream for so long that it it just people know about it whether they were wrestling fans or not. You know? I think, you know, I'm always going to be the pro-Memphis guy in mm -hmm. old school, but I just think that it had to have influenced Vince Jr. I just oh, think okay. it had to have. Mm -hmm. Seeing the success of it, and then Vince Jr. then being the genius he was and how he knew to take wrestling to this next big level mm -hmm. and incorporate. He'd seen what, how powerful this... This this angle, this storyline, and and yeah, yeah. So I I think it had a, it had a big influence, and it's kind of funny, ironic that I don't really like a lot of things about the wrestling entertainment and portion of it, and here I am saying that this is the greatest angle. <laughs> yeah. But it was a powerful it was angle, man. It was some good stuff. And that wraps up episode two of King of the Cast. I'd like to thank the panelists today. I'd also like to thank all the listeners out there and remind everybody to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at King of the Cast and vote in the polls. Leave us a comment. Send us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook so that you can find out who has crowned our next King of the Cast.